Well, this morning we are going to be continuing through our study of the original Christmas songs. There have just been oodles of Christmas songs written down through the years, but these were the very, very first. In the Gospel of Luke, in those first two chapters of Luke's Gospel, we find four songs, no less. And as I was explaining last week, they kind of burst out in the way we might imagine a musical, like one of those movies, like um, West Side Story or something, where (laughs) they're just doing the normal thing and all of a sudden everybody starts singing. It's kind of crazy. And it actually happens in our Bible in the first two chapters of Luke. First we have Mary's song. We studied that last week. That's commonly called the Magnificat because uh, uh, the Latin word, uh, the first line of Mary's song is, my soul magnifies the Lord. That word magnifies in Latin, magnificat. And this Sunday, we're gonna be studying the song of Zechariah, which has been traditionally called in church history, the Benedictus, for the same reason as uh, the Magnificat. That's in the first line of the song. It is kind of surprising, though, that when Luke, who says to Theophilus, the Gospel of Luke, Luke is setting out to write to a man named Theophilus an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And when he begins the Christmas story, surprisingly, he begins six months before the angel appears to Mary. And he appears, the beginning of the Christmas story actually begins in Jerusalem at the temple. It was early in the morning And for the most part, the city was sleeping as a man named Zechariah began his day in the temple. Zechariah was a priest, and he probably began his day by ritually bathing to prepare himself for his service in the temple that day. So you can imagine the whole city is asleep. It's dark. Maybe the thin, rose-colored lip of the dawn is just beginning to spread in the east as Zechariah steps down into a pool of water to begin preparations for the day's service. There are over 20,000 priests in Jerusalem at that time. The Bible tells us that this man was married to a woman named Elizabeth and that both of them were sincere followers of God. They loved, the Bible commends them as lovers of righteousness, who keep the commands and statutes of God, apparently not out of a spirit of legalistic duty, but out of love for who God is. I don't think the Bible means for us to come away with the understanding that Zechariah and Elizabeth are perfect human beings, but that they are sincere. They love righteousness, they love God, and they live in a way that reflects that inner reality. Their inner treasuring of God finds meaningful expression in the way that they live. But the Bible goes beyond just telling us about the character of these two. We get a little bit of bio- biographical information. We're told that they were advanced in years and that they had never been able to have a child. These words, which Luke the physician, now turned historian, lays out in a just-the-facts kind of way, encapsulates a whole load of raw feeling. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, how many prayers, probably some tears, 
How many unanswered questions lie between those lines they were unable to have a child? With all the cultural, familial, and even spiritual pressure to have children in that culture at that time, or in any culture at any time perhaps, childless parents may have wondered if something was wrong with them. And maybe they would have felt passed over by God. Barrenness was commonly viewed by their contemporaries at that time, and maybe even by Zechariah and Elizabeth, as a mark of judgment against a person, maybe for some hidden sin. And so it was more than just disappointing to never be blessed with a child. If you've ever longed for something with all your heart, then you know something about Zechariah and Elizabeth's experience during those years as they mourned the loss of something that they never even had. And as the years marched on, their parents died, their hair turns gray, they begin to experience that strange feeling of continuing to long for something that they no longer truly hope will ever come about. It's an empty-handed desire that persists even after their mind knows it is an impossibility now. They tried to pack their hopes away, but they find themselves going back and unpacking it, pulling them out again, looking at them, and then putting them away. And on that long-ago day, as the huge, sprawling city of Jerusalem was just stirring to life, cocks were crowing, water was being drawn and hauled home, cook fires were lighted, smoke was curling heavenward, people were waking up and stumbling towards the outhouse. The priests were bathing to ritually purify themselves before their time of service in the temple. Zechariah's division within the priesthood would have then gathered outside the Holy of Holies to cast lots to determine who would be responsible for the day's tasks. The practice of assigning tasks through the casting of lots was done in order to give God the say in who did what. And on that long ago day, God chose Zechariah for the highest honor a priest of his station could ever hope to achieve. He would be the one who on that day actually entered the inner room of the temple to burn incense before the Lord. There were many different divisions within the priesthood, and over 20,000 priests in Jerusalem at that time, drawing his lot on this day for that task would have probably been the only time in his life when that happened. A priest could go years without pulling temple duty with his division. Not only has his division drawn the privilege of serving in the temple that week, but he, Zechariah, draws the lot to offer incense before the Lord. When a priest offered incense, he was just outside the veil behind which was the Holy of Holies, where the Shekinah glory of God's presence was manifest. Only the high priest got closer to the revealed presence of God, and that was only one day a year. Zechariah had been training for this possibility for much of his life and was carefully going through the steps assigned to him, all alone in the inner room when he was interrupted. We pick it up, verse 11. 
And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." Now, the story of Zechariah is not so much about a man who experiences a Christmas surprise as it is about a man who was surprised by Christmas itself. Christmas snuck up on this man, Zechariah. (laughs) You know, Christmas is a time of anticipation, excitement, the best kinds of surprises. But Zechariah is surprised by the arrival of something that he was not truly anticipating and had not dared to hope for. Zechariah's encounter with an angel not only came after years of his personal prayers being met with silence, but it came after more than 400 years of silence during which God did not speak to his people at all. During that long span of centuries, since the closing words of the prophet Malachi, there had been no new prophets, no angelic visitations, no new revelation from God. Days into weeks, weeks, months, months, years, years, decades, decades, centuries, nothing, no new word from God. And then suddenly... Quite unexpectedly, God breaks his silence, and of all people, Zechariah, he's talking to you. Here we are treated to the incredibly ironic sight of a priest who is surprised, absolutely gobsmacked, to encounter something of the divine in the temple. (laughs) the place where he would have understood God as residing in a special way, but he's surprised when God shows up. I I have to ask at this point, and I was confronted with this question this week, how many Christians' expectations have been dulled through the years of business as usual? Let me ask you something, and you don't have to answer out loud, but just in the privacy of your heart, How many prayer requests have you offered and received down through the years? And has that caused you to privately begin questioning the efficacy of prayer? How has the predictable cycle of how we do church prepared us for an encounter with a wild God of surprises who is even now doing a new thing? How would we respond if God showed up here at State Road this morning in a way that surprised us and confounded our expectations? That remains an open question for us 
how we would respond. But we know how Zechariah responded. Let's continue on. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. One of the things that will jump out at us here, especially if we know the Christmas story well, and who of us doesn't know the Christmas story well? We've been hearing it always. Is that in Luke 1, both Zechariah and Mary have an unexpected face-to-face encounter with the angel Gabriel. Both are told that an unlikely pregnancy will come to pass, and both respond to this incredible news by asking a follow-up question. Zechariah asked, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And Mary asked, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? However, and here's the mystery, the angel answers Zechariah with incredulous sarcasm and a punishment, and he answers Mary with words of approval and an answer to her question. And I say he answered Zechariah with incredulous sarcasm because what Zechariah asked for was some sign that would authenticate the incredible thing that Gabriel had said would come about. And Gabriel essentially answers him, you want a sign? (laughs) Here's a sign. I am Gabriel. I'm an angel talking to you in the temple. (laughs) When I'm not hanging out with you, Zechariah, I'm standing in the presence of Almighty God. And he sent me here to you with a word. But then Gabriel gives Zechariah exactly what he asked for, a sign, an authenticating sign in the form of him being struck mute and unable to speak until what had been foretold had come to pass. And of course, the difference between Zechariah's question and Mary's question is found not in the words or sentence structure or anything like that, but in the heart behind the question. This is always the way of it with God. (laughs) We don't have the kind of religion where you have to get the words of the incantation just right. You don't have to have good grammar. You don't have to say it the right way. All God cares about is what he sees beyond the words, beyond the outward trappings, which is the heart motive behind the question. And the heart motive behind Zechariah's question And the heart motive behind Mary's question must have been different. Zechariah was skeptical and unbelieving, and Mary was humbly seeking a deeper understanding 
of how God was going to do what he said he would do. Mary's question was not if he would really do it, but how exactly are you going to do such a thing? It's not that asking questions of God is wrong, of course. It is not. It's just that God knows the difference between a statement masquerading as a question and a true, humble inquiry. Mary asks, how will this be? I believe you, but I don't understand how such a thing could come to pass. And that's different from Zechariah's question, which essentially boils down to, how can I know you're telling the truth? Verse 24, it says, After these days, while his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. There's something I want you to see in the midst of all of this, and we'll come back to this again at the end of our time together, but God always tells his people what he is about to do before he does it. It's just part of his M.O. The famous pastor and teacher Henry Blackaby once said, when God was about to judge the world, he came to Noah and told him about it first. When God was going to build a nation for himself, he came to Abraham and told him what he was about to do. When God heard the cry of the children of Israel and decided to deliver them, he appeared to Moses and told him. The Bible is absolutely chock full of instances where God, through a prophet, through a king, through some special chosen person, gave voice to what was about to come to pass before he does it. The prophet Amos stated in Amos 3.7, that, quote, the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. And that same God who heralds and proclaims what is about to come to pass is now speaking to Zechariah. But this message delivered by Gabriel to Zechariah was itself just the echo of all those times in the Old Testament where God had said this was going to happen. Roughly 430 years earlier, when God last spoke through his prophet Malachi, he said of John the Baptist, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's speaking about John the Baptist. Gabriel told Zechariah concerning his son, who would be John the Baptist, spoiler alert, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the, uh, of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This was a clear reference to Old Testament prophecy. Like another one in Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know, throughout the first two chapters of his gospel account, Luke is interweaving the story of John's birth with that of Jesus. 
And there is a lot that the story of Jesus and John have in common when it comes to the they're kind of their origin stories, or not, you can't really say Jesus' origin stories because Jesus preceded his birth at Bethlehem, but the stories of their birth. For example, both births were foretold in Old Testament prophecy. Both were announced by angels, in fact, both by the same specific angel, Gabriel. Both births were unnatural or miraculous. And in both cases, the angel tells the parents, the human parents in Jesus' account, what the name should be. However, when it comes to John the Baptist and Jesus, the real meaning and significance lies in how the two stories are different, not how they are same, the same. John's birth was unlikely and miraculous, but still he was the product of normal human procreation between a husband and wife. But Jesus He was born to a virgin, which is not only unlikely, but impossible. John was given the name God is gracious. Jesus was named Savior. John was to prepare the way of the Lord, and Jesus was the Lord who would reign forever. Uh, Luke is putting these two accounts side by side so that we would compare and contrast them and thereby arrive at a clearer understanding and picture of exactly who this Jesus is. If John is God is gracious, that's a human looking on God and saying, oh God, thank you for your grace. But Jesus' name is Savior. He is the instrument of grace. Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. I think that, by the way, this little nugget in the text might indicate that in addition to not being able to speak, Zechariah may have also been deaf. The Bible doesn't say this explicitly, but when it says that they made signs to him, that's clearly indicating that just speaking to him didn't get the job done. They couldn't say, Zechariah, what do you want to name him? Here's a tablet, write it down. They're like... (laughs) They're they're trying to tell him with like this game of charades, what do you want the baby to be named? And he asked for it, and that doesn't make any sense if he can hear. If you can just talk to him, you wouldn't make signs. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. That, That idea that they all wondered would seem to indicate, though it's not explicitly stated, that Elizabeth and Zechariah have both arrived at the name independently of one another. I think that's what we're trying, they're trying to understand is that this is a supernatural working. Elizabeth has been somehow perceived through, from God somehow that the name ought to be John. Zechariah has said the same. They all wonder at the agreement between these two. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. 
And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And here comes the Benedictus, this original Christmas song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, and he's addressing his own son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Uh, One of the things I always find so striking uh, in this account and in the story of the time when Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, we're going to study that in a couple weeks, but on that occasion, Mary is told that her soul will be pierced also. All the celebration at the birth of John the Baptist How does it end for John the Baptist as far as his earthly sojourn? He's beheaded. This child that is so celebrated for his arrival ends up with his head on a platter (laughs) with a pagan king presenting it to a girl that he kind of fancied as a gift. Christians, we need to soberly think about, is Christ what I want most for my child? It is. It's what I want most for my child. When when Zechariah celebrates John the Baptist's birth with this song, and maybe that's the wrong way to put it, I think what he, because really he only spends two, three verses of his song on John the Baptist. He's really celebrating and singing about in a Holy Spirit-filled way what God is doing. He dedicates far more of his song to John's cousin, Jesus, than to John the Baptist. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. His newborn baby boy is one of those.
born into darkness. Born under the shadow of death. Born in the curse of Adam. But his name will be God is gracious. Because God has sent Jesus to guide our feet into the way of peace. Uh, something I reflect about on in connection with Zechariah, Zechariah, and it's especially, especially poignant to me in this Christmas season. <laughs> How busy is this time of year? Every year when Christmas rolls around, I just think to myself, why do we take this awesome time of year and just cram it full of all of this noise? <laughs> why is it so full of stuff we have to do, have to get done, deadlines, even parties can become burdensome. What a gift nine months of silence was to Zechariah. Man couldn't hear, couldn't talk. Nobody called on him to do anything. <laughs> For nine months, what did this man do? He didn't even have Facebook or a cell phone. He just sat there with darkened senses, I believe, enjoying an inner communion with God. And what we see in this song is that that nine months of silence now comes out. That conversation is laid out in front of everybody in summary form in this spirit-inspired song. Sometimes we all need to unhook. Got to leave the phone behind. Go off to a desert place. Go be alone with God. We have nothing to say if we have not been poured into. And especially this time of year, we, it, and the, church can make, the church can just become an absolute religious treadmill. We are just out of breath, running, running, running. There's so much to do, so much to plan for. His involuntary fast from speaking, and maybe also from hearing, has drawn Zechariah into a deep inner communion with God. And in that inner place, he has been talking with God, hearing from God for all these months. And now the doors of his lips are thrown open, and we get a peek at the conversation he's been having. And the first line sums it all up. The first line of this song sums up Christmas. What is Christmas but a celebration of the fact that God has visited and redeemed his people? Zechariah begins his song, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Christmas is about a visitation culminating in redemption. That's what it is. We've been visited and redeemed. That's Christmas in a nutshell. There's an interesting link between this verse and verse 78. In verse 68, Zechariah states, as uh, he has visited and redeemed his people, he says it in the past tense. This is months before Jesus will be born. <laughs> but I, this is very interesting to me because in the temple, when he is confronted with Gabriel, his question, I think, indicates a heart of disbelief. And now his confidence in what God is doing 
His faith is so strong in what God is doing that he states what will come to pass as though it already had. And like Mary's song, Zechariah's song is just absolutely drenched in the Bible. We don't have time to go through and explore this in a line-by-line kind of way, but there is almost no line in Zechariah's song that is not a loose or direct quotation from the Old Testament or a reference to some Old Testament promise or prophecy. Remember how last week we talked about how Mary's song had some very strong parallels to the song of Hannah in, in, in Samuel, and how that indicated that Mary's heart, she was somebody who, her inner world had been shaped by the Bible. She knew the content of the Bible. And so when she opened her mouth to sing a song of praise, the Bible came out. Zechariah says this, though, and these are really are my favorite lines of the whole song. I, I, and, and maybe another preacher would land on a different section, but you're stuck with me. So this is my favorite part of the whole song. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You know, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus' coming into the world, saying, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, darkness on them has light shone. God is throwing open the door of judgment and letting the light of his grace and mercy shine into our cells. In Colossians 1 it says, And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the sunrise that has visited us from on high. He reigns as king over the kingdom of light, and we worship him this Christmas as people who have been brought out of darkness. The story of his coming shines in a world that is so dark. We look at the darkness of men's hearts. We look at the darkness of our own hearts. We look at the wickedness of these days. Tim Keller has a quote I love. He says this, If Christmas didn't happen, if God really didn't come, become human, die on the cross, and rise again, then the joy of Christmas... The partying and all that is only temporary, and the suffering of this world is permanent. But if Christmas really happened, and God really became a human being at Christmas, and he really broke into this world like a light in the dark to redeem us, then the suffering of this world is temporary, and the joy of the new heavens and new earth is what's permanent. This is the significance of Christmas. Earlier, and I'll I'll close on this thought, I made the statement that God always says in advance what he is about to do. Speaking of John the Baptist, the angel says to Zechariah, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
the season of Advent, Christmas season, is a time of preparation because God has told us what he plans to do next. God has told his church what he's going to do in the next chapter of redemptive history. Jesus is coming back. And he is bringing with him a day of reward for those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation, and he is bringing with him a day of wrath and judgment for those who are outside. John the Baptist came preparing people for what God intended to do next in sending Jesus. In church family, God sends us out with the word of God to prepare the world for Jesus' second coming. The amazing thing is if you're listening to these words and you are just now awakening to an understanding of all that's going on, is it's like Ebenezer Scrooge waking up and realizing he hasn't missed Christmas yet. (laughs) You haven't. If you are just now awakening to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that we are all sinners and cut off from God, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are just today awakening to the reality that you are a sinner, alienated, cut off from God, far away from him, as Ephesians 2 would describe such a person, an object of wrath. And you're just awakening to that reality and you're horrified. I want you to realize you have not missed it. (laughs) We are still today between the two comings of Jesus. Jesus came the first time as a sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. But he is coming back a second time as the Lion of Judah. A lamb and a lion. I fear the lion. (laughs) But he is today, the doors of grace are still open. Uh, God loves to repeat his story in different ways. And if we go back into the Old Testament, I think one of the clearest pictures of the days we're living in are those days when the ark was under construction, but the door of it still stood open. And during that time, anybody could have gone into the ark. The door was open. And today there is a great building project going on. We're building the church of Jesus. And by that, I don't mean an edifice with two by fours and having to run to Lowe's, things like that. We're building the church, by the church I mean the people of God. And these are the days when the door to the church is wide open. Anybody can enter into the grace that is available to them in the gospel. But he has told us in advance, just as he did all those people in the Old Testament, just as he did Zechariah and John the Baptist. In 2 Peter 3, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people 
ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. Next week, we're going to study the account of the angels appearing to the shepherds. I'm looking forward to that. Very appropriate on the Sunday right before Christmas. But of course, the angels famously say, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you don't need a Savior, you don't need Christmas. And if Jesus isn't your Savior, you don't have much to celebrate, is my view of it. Christmas is about the good news that Jesus came into the world as a Savior. And that is what Zechariah was singing about. I don't think Zechariah understood perfectly all that the Messiah would mean. But through the Holy Spirit, he was given words that fit well and that aged well. He doesn't sing about the Romans and things like that, although he probably didn't understand the Messiah perfectly. God gave him words about forgiveness of sins, death, life, light, darkness, and peace. And that's Christmas. We've been visited and redeemed. And today the doors are wide open to anyone who would put their trust in Jesus for salvation. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I don't know, I don't have the luxury of knowing who all is listening to this message this morning. Uh, But God, I just want to end by asking that if there is any who right now has not put their trust in Jesus for salvation, but is feeling drawn by you to do that. God, they are awakening to to an understanding of who Jesus is and his significance. That he came and, and put on flesh and As Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus was born and he came. Fully God and fully man. Born at Bethlehem but pre-existing Bethlehem eternally. God, we know that Jesus' coming into the world was not the birth of a new person but a coming into the world of an infinitely old person. And Father, we understand that Christmas is about Jesus' purposeful, deliberate movement towards death on a cross. And Father, we give you thanks that his name is Savior. We give you thanks, Lord, for the the truth of Romans 5.8, that you demonstrate your love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we know that Jesus did not come for the righteous, but for sinners, and we celebrate it because that's who we are. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, not seek and save those who had it figured out. Father, we thank you that in our sinfulness, in our confusion, in our wickedness, and frankly, Lord, our hatred of you, you came in with an incredible demonstration of grace and love. Jesus did what he did for us when we were sinners. And God, we now trust in your promises in Romans 5.1 that those who have been justified have been put at peace with you. In Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, all of it 
all of the sin went on Jesus on the cross. And God, you not only took away our sin, but you gave us the perfect righteousness of Christ. You didn't just clean us and leave us empty. You filled us with the Holy Spirit. And you sealed that promise. And there is therefore now nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, what an incredible Christmas gift. And God, maybe there is someone who is just now today awakening to all of this. The Christmas story started early in the morning in Jerusalem. The city was just stirring to life. And God, today, maybe you are just beginning to stir in the quiet places of a person's heart and mind. You are awakening them to the amazing story that we're living in, to the incredible ocean of grace and love and mercy that is available to all in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that they would not keep that to themselves, but would seek me out, seek someone else out. God, ask, God I pray that they would seek what are the next steps for them as a new follower of Jesus. But God, we're so grateful for this wonderful gift. Thank you for the story of Zechariah and for his song. In Jesus' name, amen.